For the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the Psalms in the Old Testament and look at how they speak into our life. It's interesting that today we celebrated the launch of, this, of the, the album, and the book of Psalms is really uh, the Israelites' collection of songs that helped encourage them, helped them worship God. And they arose out of the real issues of life. Some Psalms are Psalms of gratitude, some are Psalms of adoration, some are Psalms of contrition, some are are pledges of commitment to God and his word. And so we find a variety of, of approaches within the 150 Psalms that are in the Bible. And oftentimes you'll find a little line at the beginning of the Psalm telling the situation from which, which it arose. You'll say, this, David wrote this when this happened in his life. Because worship happens best in the everyday affairs of life. I love when we gather together like this on a Sunday morning, but I have to tell you the most meaningful worship that I've ever experienced ha- has happened in the, the flow of life, in the, in, the, in the Monday through Saturday experiences. It happens in the delivery room when a child's born. It happens in the surgery room when a loved one goes under the knife. It happens on the ball field when your child's out there uh, risking their reputation you know, as a pitcher or a player. And it happens in the boardroom when you're making a decision for your company. You know, worship happens... On the battlefield, when you're deployed and your life's in danger. And it happens in the boardroom where you've, uh, you're making decisions, or excuse me, the bedroom where, where you and your wife or your husband have to talk through serious issues that affect you or your family. And worship happens through the flow of life. And so we want to look at some of these psalms because you know a few of them. I, I conducted a service here a few weeks ago, and of course... A psalm was referenced several times in that service. It was Psalm 23, one of the most beautiful psalms ever written. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I mean, it's a masterful, powerful psalm. I just want to encourage you, there are more psalms like that in the 150 psalms in the scriptures. And so we're going to look at some of these psalms. Today we're going to look at Psalm 127. So if you have a Bible or a phone app, you can open up to Psalm 127 as we prepare to look at that. This psalm was listed among a group of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. These are psalms that the Israelite families would actually recite as they ascended the steps or ascended the hill toward Jerusalem. We don't know exactly if this was for the regular worship or for the annual feasts, but these are important truths that they would remember. And most of these psalms are very short, and they're very succinct in the points they emphasize. This one in particular was a psalm written by Solomon. You probably didn't know. Some of the psalms were written by King Solomon. Solomon was noted in Scripture as the wisest man that ever lived. God had given him this incredible gift of wisdom. And you can read some of that wisdom displayed in the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs has such profound and pithy wisdom that affects relationships, impacts how we interact with people, how we speak to people, what goes on in our heart. And it's just a powerful book of just great, wise truths. But here's the problem. Solomon knew all that in his head and it spewed all that with his mouth, but he didn't practice it in his life. Because if you look at King Solomon's life, his, his marriage, and I should say marriage plural, marriages, he had hundreds of marriages, hundreds. And, and his, his marital life was a wreck and his, his life in his home with his children was in shambles. And here's the warning. You can be the wisest person. You can be the most churched person. You can be the most knowledgeable in the scriptures. You have it all up here. You can talk it. You can recite it. But if you don't practice it, it's not going to make a bit of difference. 
And so this is so critical what we're going to look at today for, for all of us, especially if you're a parent, if you've got kids in the home. This is incredibly important for you. But if you don't, or if your kids are grown, let me just encourage you. Some of you deal with a, a lot of guilt because there are things you did when the kids were younger that you regret and you wish you could do it over again. I fall into that category. A lot of things I did wrong. A lot of things I wish I could do differently. But I can't go back and change it. And I want you to know there's grace for you. That God gives us grace. He forgives us of our mistakes. But he also gives us the opportunity to draw a line and say, but this, from this moment forward, I'm going to be the best dad I can be to those kids. They may be adults. I may have grandkids, but I'm going to be the best dad, the best grandfather I can be because now I know better. Some of you really did a good job. I mean, you did everything right. And still the kids went off the rails. And I want you to know that sometimes the best fathers still raise prodigal sons because you cannot control the choices of your kids. So you just have to know when you've done your part to say, I can't control what my kids do. That's up to them and God. And sometimes it takes a while for the kids to make a big detour to get back to the Lord, and and you have to release them to the Lord. Uh, Some of you may say, well, this doesn't even apply to me because I'm way past the childbearing years, or I'm never going to have kids, or I will, but it's not for a number of years. But I want to encourage you that the principles here apply to really life in general in many ways. It's about getting God involved in the, the flow of our lives. And so whether you have kids or not, or, or if you've got um, kids around you, you know, maybe you do have grandkids, maybe you have kids in the church, the principles here apply to, in so many ways, for us being impactful in those relationships. So I want you to listen with uh, attentive ears as we read uh, the first few verses in Psalm 127. It's going to read the first two verses. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now Solomon notes here uh, two parallel things. Unless the Lord builds a house, unless the Lord watches over the city, very, the same kinds of things. And he says, if the Lord's not involved in it, it's vain. And Solomon knows a lot about vanity because he wrote a whole book, Ecclesiastes, about vain things. But he says, this is, this is useless, this is worthless, to try to do these things without God. And so this is the first point I want to make from this psalm, is what's really vain? It's, it's doing family life without God. It's doing family life without God. Because the greatest achievement in your life is inviting God in. Greatest achievement in life is inviting God in. It begins with the initial surrender to him as Lord and Savior, but it goes beyond that. In fact, it would seem natural that if you invite Jesus in your life to be Lord, that means you would invite him into every area of your life, your marriage, your parenting, your finances, your job, your school life, everything. That, that would just make sense, but often for many of us, it's like another choice we have to make, another choice and another choice. It should have been a package deal, but ideally, we are continually opening up our lives more and more to invite God into every part of our lives. He wants to be Lord. And so that's basically what he's saying. Remember the story Jesus told about two builders? He said, there, there are two people that built a house. One built a house on sand, and the other built a house on the rock. And they both looked like they were very beautiful. They both looked, looked identical, to be honest. Just the foundations were different. But what happened was the storm came and the house on the rock stood firm, but the house on the, stand, uh, on the sand crumbled. 
And Jesus' point with that parable was the, person's, the person who builds their life on the rock, and the rock he was referring to is the teachings of Jesus, the person who builds their life on the rock endures the storms of life. And so that's why you need the Lord in. Unless the Lord's part of it, you can do family life without the Lord. You can run a business without the Lord. You can do financial decisions without the Lord. You can do them far better and far more impactful with the Lord. I don't know why anyone would want to do it without the Lord. I mean, marriage is hard. Marriage is hard by itself. Parenting is super hard. It's super hard. Why would we want to make it harder by excluding the Lord from it? We need to invite him in. God, that's the whole purpose of re-engage. Let's get God in the middle of marriage, our parenting classes. Let's get God in the middle of, a, of family life. Let's, let's do it his way. And so as Solomon shares this passage here, he shares how important it is to build life on the Lord, that unless the Lord's involved in it, it's futile. I read a definition of failure this week that I, I really liked. It's a, kind of a different angle of it, but he said this. This writer said, failure is, is succeeding at something that doesn't matter. It's being really good at something that's really not that important to God. And some of us are very good at some things, but if you ask God, God, is that what you want me to be doing? God says, no. I mean, I'm glad you like it, but don't invest so much time into that hobby or that thing or your sports team or whatever it is. I've got bigger plans for you. There's more important things, starting with your family. That's what's most important. And so I want to look at what God promises to do. See, in this passage, in these first two verses, he says, first of all, he wants to build the house. He wants to build. The Lord is a builder. I shared last Christmas something that I had never known before, that the word that's translated carpenter, which uh, Jesus was a carpenter, his father Joseph was a carpenter, is actually a word that's more generic. It means builder. And it could be with wood, it could be with stone, it could be a stonemason. And when we went to Israel, we found that there's a lot more stone than wood. But the fact is, Jesus is a builder. And we learn this when he says, I will build my church. He doesn't just build churches, though. He also builds families, households. And in both cases, the church and the house, there's a, there's a concept in some ways that they're, they're external, like God's going to build a church. But he's not going to build a building. He's talking about the people in the building. That's what he builds. He builds he builds a church that's made up of living stones, people. And similarly, when he builds a house, he's not talking about the structural framework of the house. He's talking about the household, the people inside the house. Remember King David had a dream that he wanted to build this temple for God. See, up to that point, God kind of moved around with him, and, and his presence was, was housed in a tent. And you can see David's good intention of, hey, God deserves more than a tent, he deserves a, a great building. So I want to build you a temple. Well, God didn't allow David to do it. He actually allowed his son Solomon to do it. But God actually told David that God had bigger plans than for David to build him a house. He sent a prophet, Nathan, to David. And Nathan said this to David. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David, you want to make me a house? No, I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. What God was saying to David was, you want to build me a physical house? I want to build you a dynasty within your family through which the ultimate king, the king of kings, the everlasting king will come from who will then reign on his throne. That's what I want to do, David. He wants to build a house. His house is people. 
How does he do that? How does God build the house? Do we just sit back and go, okay, God, it's all yours. Do it. Just build the house. Build the family. I'm going to watch. No, he says, you're going to be actively engaged. But like a developer here, like classic homes or new generation homes, they may have the blueprints, but they hire contractors and subs to come in and do the work. And you and I do the work, but God has provided the blueprints. Here's how you do marriage. Here's how you do family. I mean, we talk many times in church here. The Bible gives a lot of clear teaching of how husbands should love their wives, how wives should respect their husbands, how children should react to their parents, how parents should, should guide their children. I mean, all that's in the Scripture, and we teach that in classes, and you can go online and watch videos. You can read books of it. We know it up here, but it's the practice of it. It's just living that out. God has the, the blueprints, and if we would follow the blueprints, we would find that, hey, family works a lot better. Marriage works a lot better when we follow the blueprints. And God also is a consultant that's available 24-7, that as you try to fulfill the blueprints and you get stuck, you can talk to God. You can pray. You can say, God, we're, I'm struggling here in my marriage. I'm struggling here with my kids. I need your help, and God's there to listen to you in your most weary hours. And so God wants to build family, but he does more than that. He says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. That, that what God builds, God also protects. God shields what he builds. That God doesn't just leave us exposed, he protects us. And this is a big deal for us today. Uh, things have changed a lot in my lifetime. When I was a kid, we would walk to school. We would go to people's houses. Sometimes people I met at school, mom, and going to Bobby's house. Okay, be home by dinner time. We'd go do that. Um, I, I would walk home from high school after games. You know, dark. It's 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. It's in the winter. I'm walking a mile home through fields and, and dark streets to get to my house. No, no worry. We, we, we'd leave our doors open. We'd never lock them. It's not that way today. You know, when I think of all the ways that parents are worried about their kids and protecting their kids, I mean, geez, uh, you've, got, you've got internet filters, TV controls, uh, you're monitoring things on the cell phones, um, you're watching who they, who they spend time with, you don't let them go to any stranger's house, you watch when they get dropped off, when they pick up, who they're talking to, some of you have chosen to homeschool your kids because you don't want them exposed to certain things, I mean, we, we put up security systems, we, we, we read labels on food to know that there's, they're not going to ingest something that could cause harm to their bodies. I mean, we are worried at every level, and rightly so, because, you know, my home state of Wisconsin, there's a 13-year-old girl that's missing. Somebody broke into their farmhouse in rural Wisconsin, killed her parents, and she's been abducted. Nobody knows where she is. There weren't stories like that that were very frequent now as a kid. And those Amber Alerts come too frequently now. And so we're, we're worried, we're paranoid. We pack guns, put them in our nightstands. But I just want to tell you, you can do all those things, and some of those things are wise to do, but I'm telling you, you can do all those things and still not protect your kids from all harm. So what do you do? You release them to the Lord. I, I like the adage, do your best and let God take care of the rest. Because there has to come a point when your kids leave the house or they go off to college where you just say, God, they're yours. And I can't be there with them. And I just trust that you're watching out for them. My wife had a prayer request that she often prayed. God, if my kids get into trouble, make sure they get caught. Because <laughs> you know where they are, Lord. We don't. And we're not there to catch them, but you are. So please do that for us. And you know what? Uh, sometimes people will pray, uh, 
hedge of protection around their kids. I, I don't know if hedges of protection work a whole lot because, honestly, bad things happen to good people. I know people who prayed hedges of protection and their kids suffered harm. What, what does God mean when he says, I will watch over the city? Well, you remember when, he, when, when Jesus built the church? I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 16. I will build my church, he said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, let me ask you, have churches suffered persecution? Have Christians died? You know, churches have had to deal with a lot of things. So where was the hedge of protection? What Jesus is saying here is, I will protect you from the ultimate enemy. I will protect you from the gates of hell. And I believe that is where he steps in to protect our families. If you pray will your kid never get a disease, never get sick, never run into a wrong person, I, I can't promise you that. It might help. It might keep them out of a lot of harm. They're just, they're just, we live in a broken, fallen world. And yet God says, I will protect them. In fact, Jesus was so adamant about protecting children that he says, if, if any of you mess with them and cause them to stumble, it would be better if a millstone be hung around your neck and you thrown in the deepest sea than mess with one of my kids. <laughs> I like that Jesus watching out for my kids because he's firm and he's, he's there to protect them from ultimate harm. And so he shields us from danger. But he does one more thing. Um, he says here, He'll give them rest. He said, you may toil day and night, but he gives to his beloved sleep. Have you ever wondered why God made our bodies to require sleep? One third of your life, a third of your life spent sleeping. Couldn't we have said, God, could you just keep it down? If I just slept two hours, I'd have much more, I could get a lot more done. I could make more money. I could accomplish more things. I could write more books. All the stuff I could do if I just could sleep a little less. And God said, I don't want you doing more. You're doing too much as it is. See, one of the greatest um, statements that we don't trust God is workaholism. Saying, I've got to keep working because God's not taking care of us. Here's another one. It's found in this passage. Worry, anxious toil. Because if I don't do this, and God's not doing it for me, so I have, to, I have to, to, to take care of it all. And so many of us wake up in the morning as believers, and we lay down at night as atheists because we can't turn it over to God. Do you know that workaholism and worry are sins? They're not just weaknesses. They are actually sins because they're not trusting the Lord. God says, you work, do your job well, and then when you leave it, leave it. Get some rest. You know, we, we talk about um, the beauty of watching children sleep. You know, I, I, I want to sleep like a baby. You really don't want to sleep like a baby because they wake up every three or four hours screaming. You want to you sleep like a toddler. That's what you want. See, when our grandson stays overnight, he'll stay over like on a Thursday night, and he'll go to bed around 8 o'clock and um, say prayers with him and tuck him in, and he falls asleep. And you know what? I just have this, this habit. Before I go to bed at 10 or 10.30, I walk in and I just look at his face. And sometimes I'll just stroke his cheek and I'll look and say, that, that is peace. That's peace right there. You know the Lord says that we must become like little children? Yes. I think part of that is you need to sleep like a child. You need to sleep knowing that all is going to be okay. God's in control. You don't have to worry tonight. It's all going to be Good. He gives us rest, he says. And, you know, there's another translation 
of this Hebrew phrase. It could be God gives to his beloved in his sleep. So, so not that he gives the sleep, but he gives to his beloved in his sleep. And both of them are good because another one of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 121, says the Lord never slumbers nor sleeps. Meaning he's, he's up all the time working for you. And see, I just want to ask you this. Do you think you can accomplish more in your full day of labor, working your tail off anxiously, than you will by being balanced in your life and then handing it over to the Lord and sleeping? See, this isn't a, this isn't a statement to be lazy. It's just a statement to, to, to realize that you have limitations and that rest is a good thing. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. And yoke there refers to teaching. Take my teaching as a rabbi upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And guess what you're going to find? Rest for your souls. Many of you are exhausted. Many of you are just super tired. And many of you worry yourself to death. So, some of you work way too hard. And you need to learn the beauty of rest. And he gives that to his beloved. So it's vain to try to do family uh, life without God, but there's another part of this. And he talks about what's valuable in the last three verses. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So we saw what was vain. What's valuable? Raising kids with purpose. Raising our children purposefully. He uses two um, different descriptions of kids here. The first one is um, a gift or a reward from the Lord. They are a reward from them. And because of that, we have to tell our kids that. We need to communicate that to our children, that you are a gift from God. You're not, you're not an inconvenience to be tolerated. You're not a burden to be carried. You're not a trophy to be worshipped. You're a gift. And like all gifts from God, they are to be appreciated and stewarded because they aren't for you alone. All the gifts that God gives us, in a sense, get, get um, used through us to bless other people. And our kids are a good example of that. They're not ours to hold on to forever. They're ours to prepare to one day send out and be a blessing somewhere else. And so they are a gift from the Lord. I think that's so critical because in our culture today, we swing from worshiping kids to actually throwing them out. There's a movie out right now that is not, being, it's not being advertised on TV, and the news stations are refusing to talk about it. But it's a true story. The name of it's called Gosnell. It's at the movie theaters at Tinseltown only until the middle of this week. And you won't hear hardly anything about it because it's such a gruesome true story. This man was an abortion doctor and was responsible for taking of, of many, many children's lives, including children who were born alive, and he snipped their spinal cords. And me saying that horrifies you. And, I, and most of us say, I'd rather watch a horror movie on my TV than hear the reality of this. But the, the truth is that this is an ugly truth that, is, that, that in our culture, it's such a political time bomb. And I understand the, the necessity to, to have sympathy toward women who've been raped and abused and have become pregnant. But the majority of abortions are not based on saving a woman's life. It's based on removing an inconvenience. And I don't know how we can look at a pregnant mother who's carrying her child and on the one hand and another hand 
look at that as something that's akin to an appendix or wisdom teeth that can just be removed without consequence. If children are a gift from God, we cannot destroy them. We have to love them. We have to treasure them. They're from the Lord. And so we have to tell our kids that. I mean, grab their little faces and say, you are made by God. He made you with those beautiful eyes. He made that cute little dimple on your cheek. He gave you that, that, that birthmark, whatever it is. Let our children know, grandma, grandpa, speak to your kids of who God sees them. Their self-esteem comes in the fact that they are made in the image of an almighty, all-beautiful, wonderful God. And they're filled with potential. And, you know, when they're really young and they're, they're little, it's, it kind of flows more easily. You know, we love on them, we kiss on them. It's a little harder when they start to make messes and rebel. But you still have to do that. You still have to communicate that. Even in the midst of, of tension, you need to communicate. Maybe sometimes you write that little note and stick it in their lunchbox or their textbook. Or you send a, send a text message to your teenager saying, I'm thinking of you today. I want you to know I love you. And we have to continually communicate that to our kids. Even your adult children, keep communicating that. We know kids need food. And we know kids need rest. What we fail to realize is kids need love just as much to grow up healthy. Uh, there may be ways as they get older that, that are nonverbal. In fact, I think sometimes the nonverbal communication of love means a lot more. When dad says, I'm putting work aside, or I'm going to come home early, or take time off to come to your game, that says a lot to a kid. When you say, hey, you're tired, but I'm going to play ball with you. I'm going to play the video game with you. It says a huge thing to our kids. Time says a lot. And maybe, maybe for some of us, we just need to be reminded, take some time to spend with your precious gift. Let them know how wonderful. Uh, you know, something happened a couple weeks ago that really, um, really actually uh, penetrated the heart of both Julie and I. Uh, you know, we love our grandson. He comes to our house Thursday nights, Friday. Well, there was one day where I said, I'm going to get up early on Friday morning because I have some work I have to get done for the church. We're in the midst of this campaign. There's some things I had to get done on Friday morning. I'll get up early, like 6 o'clock, get it done before he wakes up. He wakes up at 10 minutes to 6. And he wants to play. And I kept having to tell him, I can't play right now. I've got something to do. And then he, are you done yet? No, I'm still working on this. For the next hour, are you done yet? No, I'm still working on this. Baba, can you play? I can't play. I'm doing this. The next week, he has a really rough week at school. His mother talks to him, Corinne. Says, what's wrong, honey? What's, why, why are you having such a rough week? He said, nobody wants to play with me. He's, and she said, nobody? She says, none of the kids at school want to play with me. And B, Baba said he was too busy. And uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, that's how I felt. <laughs> but you know what, what struck me was, here's a four-year-old that's taking note of the time. And I realized, I thought, you know, he's, not gonna, he's got things to do while I'm keeping busy. No, he's actually, what he just heard me was, I don't have time for you. And I wonder how many of us send that message to our kids or our grandkids on a regular basis. I don't have time for you. I've had a rough day. I've got things I've got to do. I have priorities in my life. Yes, you do. You do. You also took on a responsibility when you had kids that they'll be an important part of your life. So treat them well. Treat them as a gift and let them know that they are precious to you because they're precious to God. And then, then he gives one other picture here, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. You know, that's an interesting choice of words. Kids are like arrows. He didn't say they are like tools on the, on, the, on the tool rack. 
Because an arrow, think about it. What was an arrow used for? It was warfare. For battle. And you didn't go to the store and buy a, a, a set of already made, uh, sharpened arrows. You actually crafted them one at a time. Made the shaft straight. Uh, uh, sharpened the tip. You spent a lot of time preparing the arrows. He said, do that with your kids. Because one day you're going to pull them back and you're going to launch them from your house. And they need to be prepared for what's to come. They need to be prepared for what's out there. And they need to be prepared for the big issue of life. See, when you shoot arrows, there has to be a target. And I just want to ask you, what are you raising your kids for? What's the target? What's the end goal? It's to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as they love themselves. Are you doing that? I, I know, I know they, they can play an instrument well. I know they, they're great in sports. I know they're getting good grades. But how are they doing on the love stuff? Loving God and loving others. See, if, that's, if that is the target, what are we doing to prepare them? Our example speaks so loudly of how we're living that out in our lives. Kids look to us. And so habits that we, that we practice as a family, like weekly worship. Hey, we're going to church. That's what we do as a family. That's a great way to help them learn to love God. Praying in your house. Learn to talk to God. That God's approachable. You can talk to him about anything. Giving him thanks for things. Asking his help in other situations. Praying for other people. Prayer is, is a big part. Here's another one. Serving. Serving together. Because when you serve together, you're saying, you know, God cares about other people too. That's why this Operation Christmas Child is so significant. It's saying um, there are other kids who actually have greater needs than, than we do, and we want to help them. It's a great opportunity for family to actually do something to help other people together. We'll be doing Thanksgiving boxes here in just a few weeks. Those are all opportunities to, to reach out and serve other people. We have an opportunity to set kids in the right direction. A Jesuit priest named Xavier said in the 1500s, give me a child until he is seven and I will give you the man. Because children are like wet cement and they, they're, they're, they're moldable when they're young. And those all early years are so impressionable. That's why I'm so excited about what we're doing with our Next Gen Center. We are getting kids at the most impressionable years of life. And whether they're your own kids or just our kids in this household of faith, we have the chance to impact them. Wes Stafford, who was the president of Compassion International for many years, tells a story in his book, Too Small to Ignore, of a young man who was was actually adopted through another program, another program like Compassion. And his sponsor was a school teacher from Britain. And this little boy wrote to the his sponsor and said and sent a picture and said I'm sorry but I'm not very handsome and she wrote back and said you know what I have your picture on my desk I look at it every day and I think you're very handsome then he wrote to her and said I'm not a very smart kid and she wrote back and said you are you are as smart as God needs you to be for what he's called you to do when he was eight years old he wrote to her and said I just discovered I was the, I'm the fastest kid in my class And she said, great, run, and just be the best you can be at it. So that's what he did. He ran to the store. He ran to church. He ran everywhere. (laughs) And he started to win races in his community. As a young man, he was chosen by his country of Kenya to represent them in the 1988 Olympics. He went to Seoul, Korea, and ran and won a silver medal. And on the flight home, wait, that's not the best part. On the flight home, 
he learned that his plane was going to stop and lay over in London before returning to Kenya. So he says, I, I want to see that woman. He arranged to meet her. By now she's an elderly woman. He came to her house. It was a little cottage. He, he w- walked over this tall, lanky Kenyan man to meet this woman who's now in a wheelchair. And he stoops over and he takes off his, his medal and he hands it to her. She, he says, here. She said, oh, no, no, no. He said, you really were fast. You weren't kidding. <laughs> I, I saw it on TV. And he said, this is for you. When I was only eight years old, you encouraged me to run. And because of you, I kept running. This is your medal. This was your victory. We have the power as adults to impact our kids and the kids of this community in such a profound way to launch them out in the right direction in their life to let them know they are made in God's image with incredible potential and beauty and wonder and that's such a unique thing that we have to treasure the kids that often are neglected and discarded in our community and we get to do that and we do that well when we make Jesus the foundation He's the foundation of our lives. We're saying, Jesus, help me. Help me to know how to do this. Help me to be the man you want me to be, the the wife you want me to be, the mother and the father you want me to be. Help me to do that. Come into our lives. Be the center of it. We can't do it on our own. We need you. And Jesus comes in, and he becomes that cornerstone from which we build our lives.